The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and soon-to-be Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen. Another exciting week in the area of law. Yes, indeed. Um, One need only pick up a paper, and there's always legal issues, uh, as they say, above the fold. Wouldn't you agree, Mitch? I would agree. And who who would have thought? You know, I've been doing uh, meetings with prospective law students, and I have to say, there's a little bright, shiny light in their eyes when we start talking about what is the role of a lawyer in today's society? And, and I, I say to them, if you can't pick up the newspaper and be just engaged in the issues, the top issues, just like you said, above the fold issues that boil down to fundamental legal questions, then you don't belong in law school. Yeah, that's <laughs> right, Mitch. You know, we've been focusing quite a bit on the Constitution and constitutional safeguards. And in the past, we've been tracking executive orders and the immigration ban and the court scrutiny of the same ban. And today, we've selected a topic that will call for scrutiny on how laws are defined. And sometimes there's some ambiguity in the law. And one of the topics we wanted to take on is so-called hate crimes, and I have you to thank for uh, offering that suggestion because it's a, a very important issue, and, and I look forward to talking about it. But before we hit it, I know you wanted to talk about something that's very, very fresh and certainly above the fold, and that relates to the law of perjury. Well, that's right, and, and as I want to remind everybody that it's difficult to talk about some of these issues without it sounding like we're trying to to be political, and we will do our best to not try to angle our commentary based on political influence. What I'd like to do, and I I hope our goal is, is to help people understand some of the legal terms being bandied about when these stories hit the news. And so, for example, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it today, but but you're a 20-year prosecutor, and there are a couple of terms that are being used that I think would help people understand while they're watching the news in the next week or so. And just a very brief setup is the Attorney General of the United States under oath was made statements in front of the Senate that there are now allegations 
that those statements were perjurious, I guess is, this, is the, the adjective for, for it, but that there was perjury committed. And I just thought it'd be helpful, Stephen, without going into any of the details of who did what, what are they talking about when they use the word perjury? Yeah, you know, Mitch, sometimes I wish the stories had a little footnote with a, <laughs> with a glossary of terms. I think you make a good point because the term perjury is often misunderstood. And of course, you're introducing uh, Senator, well, former Senator Jeff Sessions and statements that he made while a sitting senator having to do with communications with Russian uh, diplomats or those in power within the Russian government. And perjury is codified in California under the Penal Code Section 118. And I can give a definition and then talk about some of the misnomers. It's, uh, in essence, it is an act of purposely providing false information under oath. And the setting is often one of the most important issues, Mitch, and that relates to where does the utterance or the statement take place? Because it is not perjury to tell something um, or utter false statements outside of a tribunal or not in an official setting where your statements you can't are catch taken. me for perjury at the bar when you and I are tipping a beer and talking about things and I tell uh, you yeah unless of course it's not true unless of course we put you under oath while you're ah, on the bar stool hey, it's not gonna all right. happen all right so so location so, and oath sure absolutely so it needs to be a statement made in a sworn affidavit or declaration. We often see it in terms of written statements. Uh, you can commit perjury, I'll give you a hypothetical, by falsely submitting a document to the Department of Vehicles. How's that for an example? Claiming you have a title when you don't. That would okay. be an act of perjury. So uh, most people don't think about that in the, in the use of that term. No, they don't, and they often sort of click or drive by the, uh, the what's usually thought of as boilerplate language when you attest or claim under oath that what you've signed is true, a true reflection to the best. I think that's an important point. That So it's, it's not just standing up, raising your right hand, and swearing verbally in front of a magistrate or a judge. You, it, you could act actually be a government form that down at the bottom where you're signing and dating it and there's that little bitty language right above it that says uh, I, either I swear or affirm that the above information is true and correct. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, there's a couple other things that there's nuances to, to, the, to the law, other elements that are often uh, points of contention, Mitch, and we'll see how this shakes out with Attorney General Sessions and what kind of evidence is introduced to uh, support any claims of perjury. Uh, it needs to be an oath. It needs to be taken in a setting uh, where there is an overt or an obvious claim of stating something to be true that turns out to be false. So in other words, you would need to be able to establish that the speaker knew the statement was false. And, and by the way, that's often challenging or often a point of contention. The statement needs to be material to the matter at hand. In other words, it needs to be a focal point of the testimony or the statement gleaned under oath. And the statement was false when 
made. So there's some elements. Uh, materiality often comes up. Uh, I would forecast that one of the issues having to do with Attorney General Sessions is going to be what role was he in at the time that he made a statement? What was the setting? And was it material? Good. Uh, All right. So that kind of gives a roadmap of folks to, to, a legal roadmap for them to follow while they're listening to the the news reports and reading the articles. I, I will tell you something. I pulled up while you were talking the U.S. code because you, you quoted the California law and there's no surprise, a similar rule under the U.S. code for perjury. And I, I thought it's interesting. The last part of that was that, uh, you know, exactly what you said. The person subscribed or testified that it's true under oath and that willfully and contrary to such oath states or subscribes any material matter which he does not believe to be true. So I guess there's even a, some gray area in the federal law that would say that even if it turns out that the statement, it, it's not a measure of whether or not the statement is or isn't true, it's whether the person believes. And you've talked about mens rea before. That the uh, yeah, it is. Mens rea, isn't it? It's a big mens rea issue or mental state issue for sure, Mitch. And one of the defenses that's often advanced is that at the time, the person really thought the statement was true. And, and evidence is sometimes introduced to suggest that the person had reason to believe that the statement was true. So it's not, it, it's a challenging uh, issue often to prove effectively, uh, certainly in the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, which as uh, our listeners know, is the standard in a criminal case. Yep. All right. And just to the issue of whether it's, it's uh, a serious fact under the U.S. code, if you were found to be uh, guilty of perjury, you could be fined. You could actually be imprisoned, not more than in five years or both. So it's not really a slap on the wrist, is it? Absolutely not. No, and taken very seriously in courts too, because very often the perjury happens in court, as you know, Mitch. All right. Well, good. Well, I, I want to get back to hate crimes, but thank you for that. I guess people will excuse us. That's our little primer on the law today, but I hope that will help everyone you know, make their own judgment while they watch the news roll out over the next week or so on this issue. So, yeah, Stephen, uh, you mentioned, uh, again, top of the fold, I believe yesterday there was an article about in New York City, the New York Police Department has uh, issued uh, statistics, some just very preliminary statistics for January and February, and their statistics in New York say that hate crimes have risen in 2017. So it seemed to me this was a great opportunity for us to revisit the issue of hate crimes. We did a show on it once before, uh, but I thought it was very helpful because I think there, again, is a misunderstanding of the definition of what a hate crime is. And then again, as a prosecutor, you can help us understand this concept of enhancement and how that comes into play. So why don't you set the table a little about telling us what, what is a hate crime? Sure. So, you know, Mitch, I think a good place to start is that Hate crimes are actually uh, rather novel, at least in, in their inception, in the sense that they are criminalizing speech or words, if you think about it. And I kind of like to step back and think about the impact, <clears throat> excuse me, of what 
what's being criminalized. <clears throat> it's actually somebody's words. And typically motive or the reason behind making a statement <clears throat> is not a focal point or not one of the elements of a crime. But the irony is that in hate crime statutes, certainly in California, motive is definitely highlighted. In fact, it's probably the more sig most significant part about hate crime. So it's codified in California in our code section 422.55. And this is very, very similar to other states that have hate crimes. Um, ironically, there are still some states that haven't really caught up or embraced the, no the notion of hate crimes. We can talk about that a little later. But the essence of the hate crime statute is that it is uh, a criminal act committed in whole or in part because of one or more of the following actual or perceived characteristics of the victim. And then there's a list of categories that I'm going to submit are marginalized or description of people who are marginalized by virtue of characteristics, which I think is uh, really, really interesting. So let me break down that just a little bit first. Uh, so first of all, I think I heard you say it, the, a key part of this is the word crime. So it, the, the incident that is being discussed first must be a crime before we even get to the point of describing whether it's a hate crime. Is, it, is, that, is that a fair? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you had introduced the idea of an enhancement. And uh, I think that that uh, calls for some definition, and that is that, or an explanation. An enhancement is something that adds to the, the defined crime. And a good example would be criminal threats. So in California, 422 of the Penal Code uh, sets out a definition of criminal threats. So if you give somebody a threat, an imminent threat, uh, to harm them, to hurt them in some way, that in and of itself is a crime. If you add to that that the person has, the, the recipient or the victim does have one of these characteristics or falls within one of these categories, and I can list them really quickly, a disability, gender, nationality, race or ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, or association with a person or group with one or more of these actual or perceived characteristics. So we'll expand upon those categories, Mitch, because I think the other thing that's important here is that there is a civil rights and a First Amendment component, which, which gives us an opportunity to loop back to speech. Yeah, that's exactly. Go ahead. And when we come back, we'll pick up on that discussion. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America. We're talking about hate crimes, how they are defined, and whether there's some ambiguity connected with those crimes. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, 
Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012, for more information. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our topic today, among others, is hate crimes. We're talking about how hate crimes are defined. Most states in uh, our nation do have statutes that speak to the issue of hate crimes. And Mitch, before the break, uh, I was introducing California's code, and that's section 422.55 that does codify and describe hate crimes. And then I shared the list of characteristics that are lawfully recognized as, and I use the term marginalized, and I can return back to that. Yeah, and I think that's, it's a key, key thing for individuals to remember. So for example, if I'm angry at you and I say, Stephen, I hate you and I hate you, hate you, hate you. So I've, you know, I've got, this is speech. I'm, I'm yelling at you. I'm, I'm menacing. I say, and I know that you're a Dolphins fan. I'm a Cowboys fan and I'm going to Beat you up because of that. Okay, now <clears throat> those are fighting words in in my world, because as you know, the Dolphins. Well, although they did make the playoffs, they got knocked out early. Uh, 
<laughs> and you also know that I'm a lifelong Dolphins fan. Right. So it's kind of foul well, play. You're in a group. I, I am. But I've used the word hate. You have. You used and I've it. been menacing. You used it more than once. It was menacing, although I'm not looking at you right now. Right. But uh, I can tell by the, in, the inflection in your voice. <laughs> we sound like click and clack at the moment. But it's mean, it's mean spirit. Stand. It's I mean spirit. I can inflection tell. in your voice. Go ahead. Right. Okay. So <laughs> is that going to qualify as... A hate crime, meaning is your utterance going to rise to the level where a hate crime enhancement could be added? And would anybody charge on that offense? Would an agency charge that offense? The answer, no. Because um, your example is devoid or absent of uh, actual imminent threat. Imminent threat. All you've done is actually articulate that you hate me and then you've taken a swipe um, at me because I'm a Dolphins fan, but being a Dolphins fan is not <laughs> as downtrodden as they are. Some might <laughs> argue that suffering as they are, they are marginalized <laughs> sometimes. Uh, it doesn't qualify because so, it, so if I otherwise qualified for menacing, threatening behavior, it, it might be a threat. It might rise to criminal behavior. If we were in a bar, I was intoxicated. I was I was holding a baseball bat in my hands. And a pr- and and co- uh, confronting you and moving aggressively towards you with those same words, that might be a crime. Regardless of all my my language, it's not going to be a hate crime. That's true. And then that that invites the discussion on the element of imminence, meaning, is it happening now? Uh, is the threat real? Because future threats, Mitch, and this is important. If you threaten to do something in the future, that's actually... The Dolphins beat the Cowboys. Yeah. It's time we meet. I'm going to beat you with this bat. That's right. So what you've done is you've actually injected a condition there to suggest that something might happen in the future. And that is not going to qualify as a criminal act under uh, the California statutes. Okay. And, And similar federal statutes. That's right. And you right. mentioned which states, and, and I had a note here that said uh, five states actually have no state hate crimes. Is it five? States. Okay, yeah. I, I thought of Indiana because I know they've been Correct. in the news. Yeah. yeah. South Carolina, Georgia, Indiana, Arkansas, and Wyoming have no hate crimes in place. And other states have hate crimes that have a different list. Uh, some have added sexual orientation and gender identity. Some have not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. California does have gender identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, California, if you look to our criminal jury instructions, Mitch, that is embodied in the instruction. Uh, so it is definitely contemplated as one of the uh, aggrieved or the category of marginalized uh, characteristics. And that is the, the term gender means sex. And includes a person's gender identity and gender-related appearance and behavior, whether or not stereotypically associated with the person's assigned sex at birth. So what this brings up is that if you have had an incident in a given state, the, the first thing you would look to would be the state law. But even in those five states that do not have state laws defining hate crimes, 
you still might have protections under the federal law, right? There is overlap in that. There is. There is some overlap there. And, and you know, the, the interesting connection here uh, between hate crimes, and I had mentioned uh, earlier free speech, uh, the Civil Rights Act and the right to assemble and speak freely uh, is also covered within the context of hate crimes. So, for instance, there is uh, a crime in California that goes by the name of interference with civil rights by force. So, we have seen this play out in so-called protesting scenarios, uh, whereby people are assembling in order to voice opposition or opinion about a certain cause, and they are met with physical violence in opposition. That's actually something that falls under the category of a hate crime in California. And California is, I think, way, way in front in terms of their willingness to allow sort of a broader definition, Mitch. Well, that's the, I think that's interesting. And it, it always raises the question of, of you know, the, the state versus federal laws. And, and again, in our definitions and helping people understand it, it's a reminder that we do have both state laws that give us certain protections, but we also have federal constitutional rights that are overarching and may give you protections if the state law is not as specific. Let me throw an, a hard one at you, though. And you talked about you know, an imminent threat. So is it possible? Let's, let's set aside special legislation for a moment and just talk conceptually here. Would it be in any way possible for me to, to be guilty of a hate crime via the internet? Because by definition, I'm not imminent and I'm not, not there in your physical presence. What's, what's your thought on that? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Mitch, and it's uh, a very real scenario uh, because social media and platforms that allow for speakers to hide behind uh, a keyboard is a very, very real problem. So, you make a good point in terms of what, if anything, that does to the element of imminence. Uh, in other words, what I call it's happening now, a real threat. Uh, the, the law is such that you do not necessarily have to be face-to-face -face or in physical proximity uh, as long as the statement is by content uh, easily defined as a very real threat. So, in other words, electronic communications in our rapid and high-tech world are such that even though it's a keystroke and uh, words that are composed on a keyboard and then sent electronically, it doesn't mean that the um, immediacy or the imminence factor uh, is is uh, abated or gone. How much of that is in the mind of the beholder? So, so again, I think that comes into play, doesn't it? So the recipient must, I assume the threshold barriers, the recipient must feel that they are in imminent threat. Yeah. May, that may in and of itself not be enough, but that certainly seems to me, given your definition, that that would have to be a factor. Definitely. And uh, the, the action centers on both the uh, speaker or the author of the statement and the recipient. And 
this is a common thread in a lot of criminal statutes, Mitch. Uh, there's scrutiny placed on the speaker or the author to the extent that courts, prosecutors first when making a charging decision or law enforcement when they investigate a crime would first look to see if there is evidence of intent to deliver the message uh, and they would look at content. And then if you shift it over to the recipient side, the action there centers on how the recipient uh, processed, how did it impact the recipient. And that actually leads to a pretty, pretty sharp inquiry because there's both a subjective and an objective component connected to how the recipient processes the information. So I could see this scenario going back to the internet or social media where uh, let's say the statement is made because you are a, and then fill in the blank, one of these categories. So we've, we've met the threshold of you're in a category that is within the hate crime definition. Because you are a blank, we will kill you, period. End of story. And so, so there's, with that you know, again, yeah, that's a simple that's scenario. A, no, it's really simple the way you set it up, Mitch. That, that person, the person who receives it, is now in actual fear of their life. That's right. And yeah. your your reference and use of the word because mm-hmm. is really the word that defines motive, as I was referencing before. So, in that hypothetical, your use of the word because is indicative or helps to prove the speaker's motive, and that's the issue. So um, if we looped back to the the um, example you gave earlier, Mitch, where you hate me uh, because I'm a Dolphins fan, well, that's not going to qualify as an imminent threat, for one thing, and it's also not going to qualify. So you say if they win. Well, yeah, <laughs> you're, putting some, you're putting some conditions on it, yeah. Because yeah. no one's th- going to think that's an imminent threat. Yeah, well, I uh, actually, I, I wanted to go back to the subjective objective, right? Okay, because, okay. Not, no, this is an important issue. So, so uh, if the recipient takes the threat seriously... That, that's actually a subjective evaluation. In other words, the victim would be saying, upon hearing these words, I ran for cover. Uh, I sought shelter. I reached out to the police. I was scared, in other words. But the next inquiry is, is it objectively reasonable? Because there is an objective component to this also, right? So if I flew so, off the so hand, let, me, let, me add a, let me throw the, the mix. I love that. That's an important part. So I, I, in my notes here, I say that I see that the Southern Poverty Law Center says there's 892 active hate groups in the country. And let's say I receive one of those threats. And I'm Jewish. And so I, that is clearly one of the categories. Because you're Jewish and on this radio show, we are going to kill you because of what you said. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's going to trigger the, a couple of the factors you've identified, right? Causation. Because it's gonna, there's intent, I'm a protected class, and there's been a direct threat to me. Okay? Now, it turns out that that message comes from a group in southern Florida, and there's no evidence that anyone in that group has ever left the state of Florida, and I live in California. Mm-hmm. 
So would that be the type of attenuation that you're talking about, that there's an objective analysis of it? Yeah, that, that's, that's possible. Um, the, the, my introduction of the objective component is going to be how you processed it. How, uh, okay. it is it objectively reasonable in your last hypothetical to think that you uh, would react in the manner that you did or that you processed it in the manner that you did? In other words, it's possible that somebody is hypersensitive to an issue, Right. Mm-hmm. That would be a subjective component. But if hypersensitivity has another definition, meaning that it is globally considered or people standing in your shoes would consider it to be threatening also, then you meet objective. I'm just sharing that's one okay. of the components. So, so that's, that's important. So it's objective on how I respond to the facts, not necessarily objective to whether it's a practical reality because I wouldn't know that at the time. Right? I wouldn't That's know right. where these people are or whether they could actually get to me. So That's as long right. as I so I could meet the objective test, even though it subsequently turns out that objectively they're not really a threat. Yeah, and you've also introduced another topic we can get back to on the break, and that is the the sender, the 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 author of the message is a known hate group, probably registered hate group. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about constitutional and statutory definitions of hate crimes, and we'll be back after this short break. Don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice 
Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We have been talking about hate crime statutes, and most of the states in our nation do have statutes that speak to the issue of hate crimes. We've been talking a little bit about the definition of hate crimes, and of course, we've talked about California's laws. And Mitch, I think you had mentioned that there's some states, is it five states that have yet to uh, embody statutes on that, hate That's crime. correct. Yeah, South Carolina, Georgia, Indiana, Arkansas, and Wyoming have no separate hate crime laws at the state level. So as you pointed out, it's, it's not that citizens of those states aren't protected. They would have to look to federal law to protect them if it was a hate crime. That's right, Mitch. And you know what I wanted to offer uh, with respect to the states that have not yet uh, codified hate crimes, and let's look at those five, Uh, there may well be, or I'll just offer some of the reasons behind it, and I'm certainly not supporting or touting the reasoning, but it it does relate to the issue of ambiguity and how it's defined and how uh, marginalized classes are defined. If you look, I, I recall looking at Indiana and reading up on why they were resistant and I think one of, the, one of the common answers is that it's not that the state is denying that a certain activity is a crime. And I think that's an important thing to remind individuals. True. The, an assault is an assault, and a prosecu- a police are going to arrest, and the prosecutor is going to prosecute if the case can be made, right? That's right. We talk, we've used the word enhancement a, a couple of times, but talk talk a little about that definition because I think we skipped past it a little fast. Sure, sure. I can return to that. And and you wanted to discuss just uh, the charging decision and how exactly. these decisions are made. I and think that all fits because it, it really rolls up. The police it, have a role, the prosecutor has a role, and then their decisions ultimately roll up into these national statistics that we see the FBI reporting that we talk about as well. That's true. And so if you look, I will. And if you look at the five states, Mitch, that do not have specific statutes on hate crimes, one of the reasonings are offered behind that is that there are already crimes on the books that reach to that issue. And you had mentioned assault battery. And that's interesting because it's those two crimes, assault and battery, that usually are the base crimes or the threshold crimes that give rise to an hate, a hate crime enhancement. So there it is. I use the word enhancement. And that, that actually is used to define um, additional, potential additional punishment, certainly in the California scheme, if the prosecution can prove that 
the assault, which would be offensive words that cause apprehension, if that was done or motivated because of hate aimed at a marginalized group or a group that's defined in our statute. So it's, it's a real, it's an additional stigma associated to the charge that could ultimately lead to more punishment is the best way to define that. So it sounds to me like this, this has a lot to do with the investigation of the original crime, that that information has to be gathered and confirmed there. So that's where it starts. Is that, is that what I'm right? Right. And that, that's a, a good, good topic. So in a, in our system, uh, most people would realize that it's law enforcement that investigates crimes and it's the prosecution that makes a charging decision. And that's when a suspect goes from being uh, merely a suspect to a defendant. So the investigating agency would file a, a narrative, uh, a written police or incident report, and usually recommend charges, Mitch, based on what they what they observed and what they documented. And then usually there would be a reference to the status of the victim in a, in a case where it appears rather uh, obvious that there was a targeted victim based upon some kind of susceptible uh, characteristics or, or, or uh, one of the listed characteristics in our hate crime statutes. Right. So, so you know, race-based, uh, where it's, it's vis- visually obvious, might raise a red flag to a, to a police investigator uh, to, to determine whether the, the crime was based on the race. If I'm beat up standing outside a synagogue, yes. uh, that might raise the, it certainly raise the question. I, it may have just been because I was insulting the guy about the dolphins, but it, could, it would at least raise the question as part of the investigation stage. Yeah, absolutely, Mitch. And that goes to the issue of setting. That's a good one. So places of worship, uh, you know, unfortunately, we've seen some tragic events that take place at uh, crimes that take place at places of worship. And that, that is a good example of uh, facts that would very likely lead to a hate crime type charge. And, and in fact, in the news, the last two incidents that have been very well uh, documented as far as incidents are the, the desecration of cemeteries, of Jewish cemeteries. And so there's a place so that it raised the question of whether it was a hate crime. And in, well, I think both cases, you know, th- that is not yet proven because as you talked about, we didn't know yet the motivation of the perpetrators because I don't think they have perpetrators yet. But that would then be one of the things investigated of did they single out the, the, that criminal act because it was a Jewish cemetery, which would be one of the protected classes. That's right. And, and you know, Mitch, what's interesting about that, too, is the, the bias motivation because uh, an integral part of all the hate crimes, and this is another way of describing motive, it's the bias factor, and I can, I can cite to something that I've, I think California's got right in the way that they define the motivation, and, and this is found in our criminal jury instructions, and the bias motivation uh, caused the defendant to commit the alleged acts, and this is an instruction to a jury, and I'll just quote from this, and we can uh, expand on it a little bit, because it's, it's pretty interesting. If you find that the defendant had more than one reason to commit the alleged acts, 
the bias described here must have been a substantial motivating factor. A substantial factor is more than a trivial or remote factor. However, it does not need to be the only factor that motivated the conduct. So it's so, not just a definition of who the victim is. They may, may be one of the protected classes, but you have to go down that list that you just described to say that was the reason or a substantial reason as to the act of the criminal act. Not just an act, a criminal act. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, and, and the prosecutor has to then weigh that as well, right? Because they, they make recommendations. They do. So, so, the, so the investigating agency submits a report and then the prosecutor reviews it and makes a charging decision. And if the prosecution is going to proceed on a hate crime theory or include an enhancement, they need to ensure that there's support for that charge before they file it. And I could see where, given, again, kind of reflecting back on what you've helped us understand this, this program, there are some pretty gray areas here. So... I could see where that's a challenge for a prosecutor to say, I, I, ha I can prove the elements of the crime, the underlying crime. The question now is, can I prove the elements of the enhancement? Yes, because the, well, the challenge that, that, that presents there is how do you establish the mental state of the bad actor, right? Mitch, we've had this discussion umpteen times, right? How do you do it? Uh, let me just ask quickly. So, uh, again, for those who've never been through a criminal trial, let's hope that's just about everybody, and they only see what they learn on television, which we've talked about in the past is not necessarily the facts. Can that be changed during the course of a trial? So let's say it's a trial on a, for assault, and during the process of evidence that comes out in the trial, can an enhancement be argued during the course? Can charges be changed? No, the, the, the enhancement actually is something that's, that still goes to the jury. The jury still has to decide that. Are you, are you asking if the enhancement can turn into a standalone crime? No, no, no. I was wondering that, it, let's say that there's a trial on an assault, and during the witness testimony, enough information comes out that had not come out before that appears that it meets the standard of a hate crime. So it's gone from just being an assault to a hate crime. Can a prosecutor add those charges? Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Trial question. So, typically, the answer would be no, because uh, that would deprive the defendant of the opportunity to challenge those charges in a pretrial posture. Okay. So, in other words, it's it it is really a scenario where the defendant would be taken by surprise. Okay. So, and let me go the other direction. Let's say you've started with the argument that this is a hate crime and not just a simple assault. And then as things are going along, you determine that that witness doesn't look like, sound like they've proven it. Can you drop the hate crime issue and just proceed on just the assault? You can. That's a good question, Mitch, and that would raise the issue of prosecutorial discretion. And the, the right thing to do would be to actually uh, dismiss or um, remove that charge uh, of course, what would happen pragmatically, Mitch, is that the defense would urge the court to dismiss it or the court on its own motion might actually intercede. All right. So before we wrap up on all this, I, we talked about statistics and, and you've helped us understand that it requires an investigator element, the police, the prosecutor. 
And then all of this rolls up into these national statistics that we read about in the articles. And the federal law requires the FBI to collect this data. It actually was the Hate Crime Statistics Act of 1990 by President George H.W. Bush. And yet they're voluntary reporting. So individual jurisdictions, even at the city level, have to voluntarily keep and then report these statistics. So although it's clearly helpful for us to understand and track trends, uh, as someone who has a bit of a statistics background, I I do have a bit of a question mark uh, when I look at the details and say, wow, how reliable is the data? And And I think it's fair to say it gives us broad trends but there's a lot of gaps. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good point, Mitch. And, you know, one other thing I wanted to get out before we close, too, is that there are moves in several states uh, by uh, politicians. Uh, one example would be in California, where there's actually a move, a proposal to start a hate registry, which is really very like a sex offender registry. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting uh, idea. I think it's put forth by California Assemblyman Raul Bocanegra, who is actually proposing that uh, the names of people convicted for hate crimes actually goes on a registry that is monitored and marshaled by, marshaled by the Department of Justice, just like our 290 registration requirements for sex offenders here, so-called Megan's Law that many people are familiar with, certainly in California. So that's a novel, novel idea, and we might want to track that one because there's a host of issues there. And I always hate to throw the Second Amendment in into the last few seconds of a show, but maybe it'll fire everybody up for next week. Uh, There was proposed federal legislation exactly on track with what you're talking about that would prohibit an individual from buying a gun if they were on one of these hate crime registries or if they'd been convicted of a hate crime. That's right. I don't see that one having a lot of legs and getting through, but it it goes to show that the both at the state and the federal level, uh, these issues are being looked at with great scrutiny. They are indeed. So the last, uh, we're, we're right at the very end here, but I, I did want to reference an article you sent me as we were talking about this, that uh, a reminder that this is a, a particularly American issue, that these protections or definitions of hate crimes aren't really held around the world. It's I don't. It's hard to use the word novelty, but it's a bit novel in jurisprudence, isn't it? Yeah, it is indeed. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, a reminder that understanding our constitution and understanding our individual rights, understanding the distinction between your protections under federal law versus state law, are always important in all of this. So, Thanks. another great show, Stephen. You've been listening to. Wagner and Winnick on the Law, a reminder that you can hear an archived version of this at voiceamerica.com business channel or at Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Until next week, please remember, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. 
For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 